Hello, patrons. Hi. Thank you for giving us money. Thank you. This is the June patron special. Hello. With a special guest called the air conditioner. <sighs> I'm very sorry if you can hear that, but uh, it is uh, 11.37 in the morning here in Portland, Oregon in June, and it is currently 89 degrees, so we need the air conditioner on. Yes, it's very, uh, it's like a schwitz in here otherwise. Especially since uh, I myself, Eric, am also getting over strep throat. Okay. So... Well, thank you for, you know, listeners, he's no longer contagious, so you're fine. So as promised, we're going to be talking about the the novel Federation by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens, which I have in my hand right now. Oh, but but, but Eric, how is that possible? Because I have Federation by Judith and Garfield Reeve Stevens in my hand. Well, obviously there was a horrible transporter accident. Oh my God, so this is Thomas Federation then. (laughs) Second chances. Uh, So... I don't know. I don't want to get... What did you think? This was, was your first Star Trek novel. Well, that's my the first second Star Trek okay. novel. Fair enough. In fifth grade, I read a novel that was about Worf in the, in the Starfleet Academy and, like, his adventures. Okay. And so this is the second Star Trek novel. And how does it stack up to, to that piece of crap? <laughs> it could have been good. I honestly don't remember anything about it, but, um, yeah. No, I really liked this book. I would actually read other Star Trek books. Okay. I was actually looking through because I where I where we record, I sit right next to Eric's shelf of all of these Star Trek novels. Uh, excuse me, four shelves of Star Trek novels, just to be clear. All of these shelves of Star Trek novels and a lot of them look interesting, but most of them are Deep Space 9 or Voyager ones. Yes. So, um and also, so I was looking through the I, – I guess my question is going to be about the Star Trek novels in general. Uh, okay. Well, let's strap in because we're not doing a podcast on Federation anymore. We're doing a podcast on Star Trek novels. Well, I mean, no. I, I think just kind of as an introduction because one of the things that piqued my curiosity about the ending uh, – about the – I see what you did there. Yay! Um, in the afterword, they mentioned something like, you know, this is just our, our extrapolations about Zephram Cockham sure. and the early stuff of the Federation, and it can be superseded by other works. And as we know— uh, It was. Yeah, First Contact, you know, and this novel don't uh, dovetail in any way. Right. So, I, I mean, frankly, I was much more satisfied by this story than I was by— Generations or first. Well, and that's actually one of the reasons why I wanted to do this for the patron special, because, of course, you know, uh, if you're a patron, you listen to the first contact episode. uh, You got it last week. And so that was released. um, uh, Well, it's being released today, I believe, uh, if I do my math correctly in my head. And so or next week, I don't know, whenever the hell it's being released. But um, one knows what's time travel. Right. One of the reasons that I wanted to do this is because I do think that this is a much better uh, Zephram Cochran uh, uh, origin of warp drive story, frankly, than First Contact is. Well, especially number one, since this is a direct sequel to Metamorphosis in a lot of ways. It's a direct sequel to a lot of stuff. Uh, yeah. in in all of the timelines, and there are some. Uh, there are all these parts where it's a quick summary of you know the episode that it's a sequel to. But this is this much more follows the for the version of Zephram Cochran that we see in Metamorphosis, the version that we see in first contact number one it does make much more sense that he discovered this when he was younger rather than when he was older the timing of the wars and all of that and the world you know building makes a lot more sense yes. than you know it, 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 it I, can't, I couldn't really fit 
figure out how a lot of first contact fit in the, t- the timeline. Yes. This was much more carefully fit into the timeline. I, oddly enough, it seemed like first contact reminded me in a lot of ways of what people say about the J.J. Abrams Trek movies in that it was made for a big budget movie without really caring so much about the source material, which considering the writers and the director of first contact is ridiculous to say, but yeah, I think, I mean, you know, I got that impression still. We, we kind of talked about that on the first contact episode, but I think that one of the things uh, about first contact that is, you know, that all of the TNG movies are, are fairly terrible. Uh, and I yeah. think that first contact is probably the, the, the least terrible one. I mean, I like Insurrection quite a bit. A lot of people don't like that movie, but but I like it for very trucky reasons, which we'll find out about in a couple months or whatever when we get to to Insurrection. Um, I think that the thing about First Contact and the thing about all the TNG movies is that they had really uh, a competing interest. They they were trying to make a big budget mm-hmm. action spectacle that would appeal to non trekkies at the same time as they were trying to make a Star Trek movie. Yeah. And the other thing as well with, with Star Trek TNG in general is that I don't think it translates as well to a movie as the original series did because there are so many different characters. Yes. There are too many characters, frankly, to get uh, a screen time in a movie. Well, that was so, part of what we said about uh, First Contact, for example. Dr. Crusher is barely in it. And right. I wish she would have had more of a role. Now, and that I, is actually part of the issue with Federation, which we'll get into. Yes. But. I mean, this is not a perfect book by any means. No, but I had fun with it. It's very fun, yeah. And I think that, I, you know, I don't want to say that Federation would have been a better movie than First Contact. I don't know that you would have been able to make that. You would. Well, it's impossible because of the ages. Well, yeah, the ages are. I mean, you would have had to recast, you know, Kirk, Spock, everyone pretty yeah. much because if they were making this into a movie, it would have been in the 90s when everybody was in their 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, and at that point, you know, DeForest Kelly was dead. So, yeah, and it wouldn't really work. I Actually, mean, no, I'm sorry. He wasn't dead. It was 99 he died. But, yeah, I mean, we see Kirk at several ages throughout the book, and yeah, that's that would be very well, difficult without de aging makeup. That would look ridiculous. It's true, or they would have to recast him. Yeah. So I guess well, my let's go back to your original question about Star Trek novels, which you never actually asked me. So I guess where do they fit into the world? Like, are they just in term? I I don't I hate the term canon in a lot of ways, but I mean here we have. For example, there's details about the Starfleet emblem as, you know, we, we find the origin of that is this is a physics which describes warp um, and all the sim- symbolism of that. Like, is that just Ju- Judy and Gari, you know, making stuff up that seems really cool? Is that where that came from? Like, how how is this a real history of how the federation started no so so in general yeah. star trek novels are non-canon um the uh, we we've talked about this before on on trek about but but the only thing that is actually canon is tos tng ds9 voyager enterprise and and the movies um anything else is is considered non-canon is considered uh, uh stuff that i mean writers could use it if they wanted to uh, but they usually don't. And the novels are, I mean, the novels started out in the, in the, actually, I think they started out in the 60s with some uh, 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 adaptations of, of, yeah. of TOS episodes. Yeah, the uh, other episode, you know, the other books in the series, you know, in, in this book looks like they are a lot of. And so they, you know, and, and I think starting out in the 70s when the show was canceled, they, they started doing some original stories with, with the TOS people. 
Um, and as it kind of went on and on and on, these stories were, I mean, obviously uh, the TOS novels are not necessarily contradicted by anything else. Yeah. And then starting in sort of the 80s and 90s, you get into this interesting place where uh, a lot of the novels are written at a time when they slot things into timelines. They do try and be careful. The, the authors, do, I mean, they're all published by Pocket Books, I believe. Uh, that has held the rights to Star Trek novels for, an ex- for a very long time. Yeah. And uh, so you do have some benefits of that where there was, one, especially now, where they did this whole sort of like Star Trek relaunch, which I'll explain in a minute. But essentially, they, they do try and fit uh, the, the different, you know, the TNG. and Mostly they were TOS and TNG novels. They did some numbered uh, DS9, and I believe they also did a few numbered Voyager novels. But, but that sort of has gone out of fashion. You know, that was something that was kind of... Um, a publishing thing that was done in the 80s, 70s, 80s, and 90s. Yeah. You don't really see that much anymore. Um, I guess primarily because there isn't as much of a market, market for, for yeah. this sort of thing. But at any rate, they, they do try and fit the novels into timelines as, as much as they can. And there's um, a general but, continuity, I'd say. But yeah. But it also is very contradicted by things that happen later. I mean, a perfect example is a novel I'm looking at right now on the shelf called Dark Mirror, which... Uh, fits into, I believe, the fourth season of TNG, but it is directly contradicted by the development of the Mirror Universe in Deep Space Nine. But that book was published before that happened. Yeah. So that's exact. That's exactly what happens. Like they're they're you know they're free to do what they want in the novels, but then the TV shows may actually yeah. contradict what the novels say. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so it's in almost other like words... it's it's better to look at the novels as sort of just you know alternate takes on Star Trek or something yeah. like that. I mean, it's very clear. Again, reading the afterward, they list out all you know. They list out all of the uh, episodes that they're basing it on. They they even mention the actors. So you, yeah, yeah, and which is true because I'm obviously imagining these actors um, and themselves. Then, they talk about how they use the technical manual to extrapolate some stuff. So right. I would assume. Well, and this, this is well, and this is also the other thing too that I should mention is that Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens are. Um, I think they're actually they are some of the best uh, writers of Star Trek novels, and they do a very good job. I mean, they really understand Star Trek. I think that they they have the voices of the characters. They, down very they have well, the voices yeah. of the characters down very well. They've written a few really great ones. I have another one on my shelf called Prime Directive, which they wrote, which is quite good. And uh, they actually wrote for the fourth season of Enterprise as well. Um, I think that you know the other thing I want to mention too is that the novel sort of turned a corner. I think sort of in the 10 years ago or so period where they they hit upon this idea that once Voyager was canceled um, and that era of Star Trek uh, appeared to be over because the whole 24th century TNG DS9 Voyager adventure was over because Enterprise was a prequel that uh, they were going to continue the stories of, of those shows in novels and they sort of just got bigger and bigger and bigger and extrapolated that out and they have all sort of crossover novels and so they sort of like continued that that story um so in a way they're kind of season eight of those shows and kind of yeah yeah. and 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 who knows exactly what brian fuller's star trek is going to be if it is going to contradict that stuff we really don't know um it's all not canon so and some of it is good and some of it is terrible but that's how the that's how these things go so there is almost a degree to which this is just really good licensed fanfic? I mean, sort of, yeah. But Obviously better than, you know, just, and I'm going to speak in generalizations, you know, a 16-year-old writing, you know, out there, Kirk and Spock slash, you know, yeah. which, which, which is fun and has its place in the thing, but we, we'll take that. I mean, what I liked about this novel was that it, it was 
I mean, it really did flesh out a lot of the world. I like how there is a lot of just musings about the technologies and the things, and it does make it... I mean, there are all these really nice little digressions that basically boil down to, wow, science is, like, awesome, man. You know? Right, right. But I kind of appreciated those. Sure. Because that is stuff that, I mean, for many reasons, the TV can't get into. The TV can't uh, go into these long interior monologues of Kirk's. We need to, you know, obviously. And it does give us more insight into the personalities of the crew, I guess. I I mean, I I don't know. It's... uh, I liked uh, – this was a very intr- – I've never re- – I don't really read much in the way of novelizations of shows yeah. or, you know, novel spinoffs. So it was an interesting way of taking on it. Well, I think that one of the things that I really appreciate about this novel is that it it makes a much stronger backstory for Zephram Cochran. Yes. And, and, I mean, to be clear, one of the things that I don't like about First Contact is – uh, frankly, that the Zephram Cochran stuff really doesn't make any sense if yeah. you think about it for more than a couple of minutes. I mean, that, first contact Zephram Cochran, as we see him in the movie, is a a fifty year old drunk living in the wilds of Montana after World War Three has happened. Yeah, who miraculously somehow invents warp drive. Yeah, without any resources, without any, and it's like it doesn't make a lick of sense. Yeah. Whereas Federation in this novel. Uh, Zephram Cochran is revealed to be a you know world-renowned scientist who has a lot of backing from uh, this this uh, philanthropist billionaire called Brock. Um, they also they they say that impulse drive had already been invented, so yeah. they could already go almost as fast as the speed of light. There were already colonies out yeah, in, yeah, yeah. In, on Titan, the Moon, Mars, all these kind of places, and, and so I, it 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 builds up a a different alternate universe or an alternate take on that which makes a lot more sense because of course one of the reasons in the novel that you know uh, the federation eventually became uh, uh, in existence was because of the existence of these colonies on other planets and, yeah. and, and and moons out in the universe and even other even other solar systems that when earth decided to to collapse into world war 3 um, the colonies were sort of like well we don't want any yeah, part of this that makes a lot it, it does make a because the world war 3 stuff how did all this technology survive there are too many questions what exactly is the situation of of the world at that point how is it dealt before, you know, prior to warp drive? And in this invent, inventing warp drive on the eve of World War Three makes a lot of lot more sense, right? You know, they Brock basically rightly says this is the one way that I mean, it's very one of the major themes of the book is of technology as a neutral force, and I like how they do leave it very ambiguous. On the one hand. Warp drive is what enables humanity to take to the stars and spread its culture further. I mean, there is a really nice speech in Babylon 5 episode where uh, he basically says, at some point, Earth is going to die out, and when that die out, we lose baseball, we lose Marilyn Monroe, we lose, you know, Nietzsche, we lose Leonardo da Vinci, and... I don't know if losing Nietzsche would be such I don't know, I'm just naming people I can think of. Um, (laughs) And... You know, bringing it out to the stars is the way that that will survive, and that is certainly a theme in this novel, but at the same time, they also, by allowing colonies outside of Earth to exist, that kind of leaves – a lot of people basically say – you know, Earth is dealing with this optimum movement. Fuck it. Sure. I'm I'm gone. Yeah. you, You can take it, and that does allow this movement to fester and eventually for World War III to start. In other words, 
because Earth becomes expendable to a degree, it's la- it's treated like that. Now, and that's yeah, and I think you know that that's exactly. And this is sort of getting a little bit into the the, the Star Trek weeds, but you know, then again, this is a patron special, but, and that's so, kind of why I liked the so novel. lock in. But uh, the, the the timeline of this novel just makes a lot more sense yeah. because my problem with First Contact again has always been Zephyr Cochran invents warp drive in twenty sixty three, but we know from the pilot episode of TNG that all of this sort of like post apocalyptic world. War three nonsense was going on, you know, in 2079, 16 years later. Why? Like they made contact with the Vulcans in 2063. They invented warp drive in 2063, but the planet is actually worse off 16 years later. Yeah. That seems to be a contradiction. Whereas in this novel, it makes a lot more sense because they don't actually meet the Vulcans for, for years after they invent warp drive number one. And they do make a point of saying in the novel that Cochran and other people go out and they meet the Vulcanians which I kind of is like as a nice callback to, to the cage uh, when they were the, the Vulcans were kind of referred to as that in a few early episodes of TOS um, and also that that what happens more as we've said is that you know they have all of these colonies on other planets and moons Earth is just kind of like essentially cast aside by the colonies. Yeah. And that makes a lot more sense to me because then Earth almost becomes like this thing that descends into madness. Yeah. And then frankly that – this also does anticipate where – while I still can't fit the Bell Riots into this timeline, it does anticipate where DS9 goes in Homefront and Paradise Lost where well, you know, you... Basically, the novel basically says after World War Three, you know, and – you have all of the colonies essentially – it's as they realize, you know, oh, God, our home's being destroyed and they kind of stop, you know, that, that – you know. Well, interestingly enough, I think it's actually pretty easy to slot the Bell Riots into this novel because, of course, if you look at it from a point of view of, okay, there's economic instability, yeah. uh, uh, there's cultural instability, the Bell Riots happen, you know, it's not that the Bell Riots were like the the, the – actual cause yeah, of no. the Federation. They were just one of the markers of... Because we, you know, we mentioned this, you know, when we talked about that, but I mean, like, you know, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. And it's not like the civil rights movement no, no. just, you know, it stopped. Um, and, and, and also, you know, part of the implication in this... You know, so, I mean, it's very implied by the name Adric Thorson that this is coming, you know, this optimum movement comes someplace Nordic, you know, Sweden, somewhere around that area. Yeah. And so you can see it taking over Europe and a lot of the world, but you can possibly see, well, maybe America is held out against the optimum movement per se, although it's doing sanctuaries, you know, in well, other the words, novel actually does say that there are states that are taken over by the Optimum movement. Yes, so that implies that there are states where there are not. So yeah, in a way, yes, the Optimum movement and the sanctuaries can actually coexist. Sure. I, I can't see that working into the next into the first contact timeline. No, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, so that's I guess why I, yeah, this again, it felt more true to the timeline and I guess this is one of those what do we want from Star Trek? Do we want a detailed world that this can all fit in and i think you and i kind of do to a degree i don't think that first contact that was its goals well i think that i don't necessarily want that i think that you know star trek is one of those things that is expansive star trek is messy uh it's been you know written by dozens and hundreds of people over 50 years it's not all going to hang together and especially a lot of the stuff that was established in tos you know kind of like you know, handcuff them to a degree doesn't make a whole lot of sense. 
it does. I mean, the whole World War Three stuff is very, very of the '60s. Yes. That was a concern then. It's not oh, really yeah. a concern now. I mean, I would say I think people are concerned there will be a ma- major war, but you know, not necessarily World War Three. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's a I very specific the, kind of thing. Yeah, it's fair. Um, I don't even know if people are really concerned there's going to be a major war, but anyway. But really, the problem is that if Star Trek is going to delve into its past and construct it, I would like it to make more sense than First Contact does. Of course. And I think that the problem, again, with First Contact is that I don't know that they sat down and thought about the logical implications of what they were writing. It almost seems like... uh they owed James. They they promised James Cromwell. All right, you'll get a lead part in the next Star Trek movie. And then when they wrote a they wrote a story about Zephram Cochran. because because that's not who I would imagine to cast for that. I'm always fascinated by how you think Hollywood works. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. No, I know, but like, but why is he in? in you know, the, I don't know. He's because they wrote the movie and he had to, he auditioned and they <laughs> thought he did a good job. I mean, he yeah. was fine. He was fine, but you know, again. They when I prior to that, if you would ask me to picture Zephram Cochran, it would not be at all that direction. It's true. Yeah, it would, I don't, be, it would be Zac Efron. Yes. Well, I yeah, I, I agree with you, but I think that that again, well, let, let, I want to talk a little bit about. I mean, we we have talked a lot about the Federation of Zephram Cochran and the backstory and all this kind of stuff, and it, it makes sense. And I think that you know, uh, in in a certain way, I don't know that there's. This is a very meta Star Trek novel. Oh, yeah. I think that it is very sort of like they try a little too hard to tie everything together. I don't necessarily know what the TNG parts really add yeah, to it. Yeah, I actually cuz I really liked the TOS parts and I really liked I mean, I think the strongest sections of the novel were just the Cochrane sections. I agree, because, they're really good. Because to a very real degree, it's a completely new character and also they have you know, they figured out the companion very well. I like the characterization of how the companion works in this novel. It makes sense. Um, and, uh, uh, I, yeah, the, T, the TNG parts are just kind of there. They, it's a very long time before that section gets connected to the rest of it. And so it does feel like, you know, obviously the, the, the connections between the TOS era and the Cochrane stories are very obvious, but the TNG stuff doesn't. And frankly, you see Kirk and Picard on the cover. You're told in the back of it, uh, at last, it features both crews, and, you know, they're going to have to depend on each other, and you're waiting for the crossover. And, I mean, I do like the way that they do only fleetingly connect to each other, and I think that is a very strong thematic thing at the same time. I, I, well, I, it is it is a very it is a very trekky sort of thing. I mean, the, the whole crossover and the whole idea yeah. of the novel really is that um, yeah, at the end of the novel, what, what, what basically happens is that... Uh, 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 the Enterprise of of the TOS era and the Enterprise of the TNG era uh, are around the same worm, around the same black hole, and they go into the event horizon. And of course, there's time distillation effects, and, and it gets drawn out. And so, and I'm going to be honest, I just kind of skimmed those sections as I kind of fade out the techno babble in a lot of the episodes because you know all it mattered was, was what was going on rather than the side. The sure, yeah, it doesn't, behind it, it, it doesn't but, matter that much. All you need to know is that they were sort of in, in infinite time. And they have a problem and we you know, we got to fix it and we have 10 seconds to do. And so what what they what essentially they do is they can't communicate but there's this maneuver that they both have to execute so both ships can get out of of the black hole and 
the the idea behind it is that both Kirk and Picard, Kirk being in the 23rd century and Picard being in the 24th century, uh, uh, both you know in, in kind of instinctively or implicitly trust the the other captain yeah. to do what they need to do to get out because they are both servants of the Federation and they both believe in the same ideals and all of this kind of yeah. stuff. And it's a very nice sort of tie-in. You know, you get Zephram Cochran as sort of the beginning of this idea with, with the idealist Brock who yeah. wants to expand Earth out into the stars and who wants to, uh, you know, have this sort of expansive peace uh, throughout the galaxy. And then, of course, Earth becomes very, very small and Zephram Cochran is obviously the future. And then you have Kirk and you have Picard and it all kind of just connects yeah. nicely. But, the, of course, again, as you say, the problem is that the TNG parts of it you know, they, they, they don't, I think the book is a little too long. I think if they yeah. had cut most of the TNG stuff, it would have been you, fine. And for a lot of it, you can tell there are only TNG chapters because, you know, there's a Cochrane chapter, a TOS, a TNG, a Cochrane, a TOS, a TNG, a Cochrane, you know, so they need to put the next ingredient in the sandwich and the, the structure says it has to be a TNG chapter. Because they do try and link it to, you know, the, the TNG parts. So the, the, the actual um, um, timeline of the TOS and TNG parts is the TOS stuff takes place directly after Journey to Babel. Mm-hmm. And they also have this thing about they, they kind of take place around the same time that Sarek was on both shows. And yeah. They, and, uh, and this is dealing with. So, yeah. So and, the T, and the TNG parts take place directly before Best of Both Worlds. And directly after the Sarek episode. Yes. Yeah. Um, as Sarek is leaving both ships. And. This is also about six months after Metamorphosis, and right. I really liked that. Be- and they even mentioned that you know that area of space is still under war then too. Which one of the things I didn't like about the episode is they build up the commissioner's you know importance, and then suddenly you know oh well we can get someone else to do it, and it implies. I mean, I really this the TOS segments do a lot of the same things that. Um, Wrath of Khan did in that it takes the implications of an episode that, you know, Kirk declares is finished, but no, not everything is finished from that. Yeah. And they do a lot of – one of the things – you know, they, they stitch the Orions from Journey to Babel into this plot involving, you know, metamorphosis. And I, I don't know. It, it felt – again, I thought there was a, very, a lot of skillful – understanding of where all these episodes fit in and they were able to stitch them into a larger narrative well and that is something that you know judith and garfield reeve stevens are very good at and i think that's one of the reasons why um the showrunner that was hired to run the fourth season of enterprise hired them because he knew that you know enterprise was a prequel and one of the criticisms of the first three seasons of enterprise was that it wasn't really doing a good job of being a prequel yeah and uh which you know you could argue yes or no we will certainly talk about that when we get to enterprise in in a year or so or a couple of years but one of the reasons why they were hired primarily, I think, was because, well, they're very good writers, but also because they implicitly understand yeah. how to fit a lot of disparate elements that were created by different people into a cohesive whole. And I also think they know why to do that, because there is a very – I mean, this is not a novel that I you can appreciate on its own. This is a novel that I've had to watch into- the entirety of yeah. TOS and TNG. And reading it, when you see these moments of connection or these little callbacks or this is something that I'd always wondered – I've always wondered what the Starfleet symbol means. And 
it's a lot of these little, oh, hey, that's really cool. Like, they understand what Trekkies want out of a Star Trek story. Yeah. And not only that, but I think that there is a way to... I mean, because I think that if you were a casual Star Trek yeah. fan, you could read this book. Oh, and yeah, I think you'd get you w- the plot, but... And you would get something out of it. And I think that's why it also is a really nice novel, because it works on both of those levels. Yeah. Although, I would say, I think they're... You do have to understand the importance of who Kirk and who Picard are in order to just get why this is. But to a degree, Captain Kirk especially and Picard too are so iconic in – so yeah, you can't completely go casually into them. That said, I would not recommend a fan get into the series with this book. No, 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 no. And I think that, you know, it does – I mean I don't know if – because the original conception, they do say in the afterward, the initial conception was that Kirk would be sort of like – you know, spanning different time periods and the yeah. Federation and stuff. And it, it, it appears to me that the addition of TNG was kind of a, a late addition to the pitch. And Well, they mention, I mean, they say that they worked on it for about 10 years. So, yeah, you could see probably they didn't. Yeah, they did. for, I think they said they, they say that they first pitched the idea in like 1987, yeah. right, I guess right before TNG aired for the first time. But again, I mean, I don't want to keep harping on this, but I, I think that the novel, the one problem I do have with the novel is that the TNG stuff just never really feels like it's as important no. as the rest of it. Because, of course, the Zephram Cochran stuff, what's going on in the TOS era with Journey to Babel with Sarek, you know, taking place. They've met Zephram Cochran before. I, I, no, this is actually exactly it. It could be any starship captain in the TNG era. Right. Which part? Which is kind of part of that at the end. They, and they do directly say it doesn't matter who the captain was. By being a Starfleet captain, again, he's going to make the right decision. So, yeah, it is kind of interchangeable who, you know, that it's Picard is nice because we know who Picard is. But it almost, it, it could just... It- it feels like they're trying a little too hard to connect yeah. the TNG portions to the TOS and Zephram Cochran portions because, of course, you know, Picard still has uh, uh, the memory of Sarek in his head, yeah. which is sort of like connected to TOS a little bit. There but are they're, a lot also, of bits. they're also like you're reading this and you're kind of like there's Ferengi that have hijacked a Romulan ship and there's Romulans and there's this Borg artifact and they've got this thing called the yeah. Preserver artifact. And then they've got, you know, and then the very end of it ends with something that I always hated about TNG, which is when like data goes crazy because yes. of course somehow Adric Thorson is still alive, which they never really explain. And he put himself into this preserver artifact. Then they download his, Are the, downloads and is himself it really into a preserver? Body. I couldn't get if it was really a preserver artifact or whether it was just made to look like an artifact they'd never seen before i don't know i mean frankly it's one of my you know it's one of my fan theories that the about these iconians and the guardian of forever was made by them having the preservers as another ancient civilization is how many of these are we gonna have and i don't know if the preservers were made for this novel i don't i don't know i mean i'm trying to remember what, what the ones were in that episode of tng um, I forget what they were. Maybe they actually, maybe that's what they were from. Um, which, uh, with the one with uh, the chase, where where they have the message in the DNA. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually. I I don't know if that was because they do mention about you know stuff being seeded and I don't know. Um, it, it doesn't really matter to a degree. Um, well, it doesn't. It doesn't because yeah. I think it's one of those things that. It, it, it comes across as maybe a little too much of a deep cut in a way. I guess so, yeah. And and in a in the TNG portions that I mean, because the, the the problem really is that the TOS portions feel very focused. They know what they're doing yeah. there. The t- the the Zephyr Cochran portions feel very focused, and they want to they want to you know build up and show 
how Earth is spread out, you know, throughout the, yeah. throughout the galaxy, the beginning stages of that, what Zephram Cochran was actually doing, how Earth fell into um, into uh, uh, World War Three, and the Zephram Cochran portions also feel like they have a better understanding of like the the Star Trek. When it, sh- I mean, Star Trek has never been super good at world building, except for DS Nine, I think. Yeah, and it's also never really been good at constructing, uh, having like a, a mature or adult understanding of of politics. Mm. And what I really like about those portions is that it does really feel like they've given it a lot of thought about what the Opta movement was like, what was going on, yeah. how this how this was happening. And I mean, of course, I am they ch- don't they don't have too many chapters that directly take place in that time period and they kind of abandon it pretty quickly because they're done with it. It's more alluded to. I mean, we all we learn about Colonel Green, for example, is that there was a figure at the head of the movement called Colonel Green. That's literally all we're told about it. I think there is one part where someone's – I think Spock starts to mention it and he's cut off yeah. or something like that. So to a degree, it doesn't matter. I mean we can imprint on Colonel Green whatever version of fascism we have internalized onto him. And the part of the point of Thorson is that we're told that – World War III partially was caused by so many fractures of the Optimum movement. The natural outgrowth of that is that each was trying to stamp the other out as not Optimum. Yeah. And he's just one crazy out of a dozen. So I guess the, 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 the question we're left with then is, is you know, we, we alluded to this earlier and this kind of idea about how technology is neutral and it's yeah. not good or evil. And this is certainly something that Zephyr Cochran believes. I think it's something that the Federation believes. But um, this idea of the warp bomb, and this is something that yeah. we've. Not, I mean, the, I mean, the other thing I have to say that I love about the the novel is the the, the different language that they use. I mean, you've got the the, the word super impellers for for warp drive and things like that, and you're just kind of like, that's cute. Yeah. yeah. But um, they talk a lot about the warp bomb and how this this one accident on on the moon uh, uh, convinced Thorson that yeah. you could create a warp bomb. I mean, I like how all, most of the plot is just <laughs> a series of misunderstandings to to a degree. I mean, he makes it very clear that what what this warp bomb is is a very specific series of circumstances that can only do minor damage. If you're looking for a weapon, there are so many easier, cheaper, and more effective ways of doing it. A warp bomb is not only physically impossible, it's useless. But the more that Cochrane says that, and especially, you know, the less Thorson believes him. And, you know, Cochrane makes this, oh yeah, I'm going to get my warp bomb on you, you know, kind of to taunt him, and which comes back to haunt him later because that just fuels his obsession. Meanwhile, the conspiracy that, you know, Admiral Cabregni and uh, Thorson are played in is dealing with, well, he sees a file, so he's going to infiltrate it, you know, looking for nothing. She sees a breach. She believes that, you know, someone's breaching, so she yeah. puts in more security. More security convinces him that there's something to hide, and eventually the two of them escalate into the plot. And it's very difficult to convince the other that, you know, you're this is not actually existing. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, and I think that that's one of the nice things about the novel, too, is, is you know, it, certainly, you know, this is not, like, you know, great literature or anything, but... It's it's very well constructed. Yeah. I mean, the 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 plot builds in a logical fashion. They do a really good job at juggling a lot of disparate elements that, in, I think, in the hands of lesser writers, yes. would have become a mess. And and if the TNG portions are are less connected to the rest of it, well, they still hang together internally in their own yeah. timeline. I mean, I th- I would say it is an accomplishment to weave together these three stories as well as they do. Um, 
which, yeah, it is kind of difficult to make it all fit together. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, that, that you know, again, these two authors really do have a, a really deep understanding of, of Star Trek and really do want to make sense of it in a lot of interesting ways. And they understand the ideas behind it. I mean, I yeah. think that the the end of the novel especially is, is a good example of that, where the novel ends with, you know, the, the Titans landing or whatever in, in three different time periods. Yeah. And then Kirk is there and Picard is there and they've got the letter from Kirk and it's all very nice. You know, I don't really know what the guardian of forever had to do with anything. No. There's this very, very prologue and epilogue part where well, an older Kirk is at the guardian of forever. And I'm kind of like, okay. Yeah. I mean, part of it is the very, this, See, the last two chapters, the final chapter is the Guardian of Forever, having shown Kirk everything. Kirk asks at the beginning, you know, the question why, and it's implied that this novel is the Guardian of Forever's answer. He's shown Kirk all – it's shown Kirk everything, and he comes up with the understanding of life continuing and – you know, of cooperation, we're given right before that an image of the distant future um, where – Finally, the galaxy has become a, you know, all of the galaxy has gone into the Federation and they're given an artifact which is implied to be the preserver artifact, um, invitations to other universes, uh, and, you know, whoever the Federation is in that day and age, who, who we are, it's implied are very similar in ideals to the, you know, Kirk and Picard, right. um, are going off into multiple universes now, and, I mean, throughout the novel, there's this concept of the law of mediocrity, which is essentially uh, chemistry is the same everywhere. You're going to get the same types of elements, you know, throughout the universe, maybe spread in different amounts, but chemistry and physics basically work the same way. If something doesn't work, it's because, you know, our understanding is incomplete. And they use this to – that's part of the how – you know, the law of mediocrity is how Kirk and Picard know that each other has the same ideals, that the Federation would always have these ideals throughout time. And so it does really make sense that if you can get foundations between planets, you can get – if you can get federations between planets, you can get federations between solar systems, between galaxies, and between universes. And that is a beautiful mess. I think that's the ultimate end point of – Star Trek, I mean, that is a very beautiful vision that not only can, you know, we understand each other in our universe, but eventually even a different universe yeah. can find enough common ground within us. Yeah, because, I, yeah, I think you're right, and I think that that is the ultimate point of the novel, because, yeah. you know, again, if you look at the, the journey of Thorson through the novel, and you look at the journey of, of Zephram Cochran through the novel, you know, really it's set up as a battle of two competing uh, yeah. philosophies, and of course we know because we're reading a Star Trek novel. <laughs> which one's going to win? Which one is going to win? But, but the other interesting thing, of course, is that Thorson hangs around for, for 300 years to, to, to actually find out which one wins, how it hangs yeah. on, and he seems to get crazier and crazier over the course of time. Which there is a point where I think Picard's asking, why are you doing this? He's just to prove I'm right, you know, in the end. And... I mean, in the early in the one of the first conversations in the novel between Brock and Cochrane is that Brock is saying, you know, every time there's a new technology, people think this is what's going to be bring peace, and it doesn't. You know, getting a bigger gun will not bring out peace because people are still the same. What does bring out peace is a change in people. Is you know, you you can do all the te- in technology is neutral. 
in the hands of people who are venal or even or misunderstood, it's going to be used for evil purposes. In yeah. the hands of the Federation, people who do believe in these ideals of connectedness and sharing and openness and love for others, it's going to be used for good ends. You yeah. know, it's the difference between a gun and a medical device, for example. And you know, what we see throughout the course of the novel is Federation turning out to mean this change of heart in in people, in however you define that, whatever species they are from, whatever construct. I mean – the Thorson character thinks that becoming optimum means shedding off these, you know, being better, being stronger, being, more, you know, more immortal. And obviously all of those are folly paths. Yeah, because at the end of the day, what Thorson is doing is removing yeah. more and more of his humanity. Yeah, we're told that the end humanity is long dead from him. Yeah, yeah. So I thought that was a – and frankly – the novel, I think, is able to go into – I mean that's a fairly sophisticated theme. It's, it does work on several different things hanging together at once, and it is very – you know, the novel's expanse compared to a television episode is able to bring that about. I guess I wish that maybe the TNG movies would have this level of depth to them. Yeah. Because I certainly felt that, for example, The Undiscovered Country had that level of depth and sophistication to it. Certainly Wrath of Khan did. Uh, certainly The Whale one and The uh, Search for Spock, while maybe not quite on that level, were very good. I didn't feel that about First Contact. And again, I'm not getting the sense that I'm going to be feeling it about the next few. Uh, yeah, I, I think that that's a fair summation. And I think that, that you know, I, I, I still struggle with, with an answer to that question as well like what why did they go that direction yeah. you know because there's no I, you know there must have been a reason why paramount wanted more of an action-oriented movie that would appeal to a larger audience uh, you know i mean you I, I don't know you could certainly obviously answer why jj trek went into that, uh, that well yeah i mean of course you're, you're <laughs> talking version. about almost a completely different movie making yeah. environment but, but why in the tng era when you had ds9 on well, well, I mean, DS9 is, is a whole other kettle of fish, honestly, because DS9 never really did very yeah. well. But, um, yeah, I, I don't know, because there were six TOS movies, and, and while you could argue that, that perhaps maybe, you know, one or two of them were not exactly the most thematically, you know, rich, most of them were, and I think yeah. that they were all very true to... I mean, I would say even something like Star Trek V, which is a mess still had some ideas at its core. Yeah. It's the TNG movies, I don't know what they have at their core, and I think that that's maybe uh, uh, something that we can talk about when we talk about Insurrection and especially Nemesis, about why exactly that happened. And I think, you know, and I think you're starting to realize why people like Star Trek novels as well, because they, they do have a lot of interesting depth, and they do yeah. kind of expand things out into different directions that you may not get in a movie, and especially if you go and you see generations because this came out i think right before right after generations so yeah, isn't generations obliquely referred to towards like, yeah in so the very he, final it, yeah, that's chapter right. he's You're right. talking yeah. about you know he he it doesn't exactly mention Kirk is dead based on those, you know, events, but... Yes, yeah. you're right. It did. Yeah, it did, it did come out after Generations, so they did have some knowledge of that. So if you go see Generations and you're kind of like, well, that was a pile of crap, yeah. then you can go buy this novel and you can say, oh, I still like Star Trek. Well, I got to be honest. I cast Malcolm McDowell as Thorson in this just to, you know, keep the actor and give him a better part. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe you should apply for a job at Paramount. Yay! LA is only 800 miles away. Oh, God. 
All right. Well, I think that's it for Federation. All right. Um, you're going to have to talk to me about other Star Trek novels I can read. I'm really excited about Q and Law. No. Why? Don't. <laughs> don't. No. Just don't. Please don't. I really want to, though. So read it. I don't know. Okay. Do whatever you want. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, thanks for listening to the patron special. Thank you very much for uh, being one of our loyal patrons, giving us $5 a month or more. We really do appreciate your support we each do. and every month. It is wonderful. I read a book for you people. And we hope that you enjoyed this episode of the patron special. All right. Next month for the patron special, we are going to uh, go back to a format that we did a few months ago. We're going to be talking about a character study. (gasps) We're actually going to do three different characters. We're going to do uh, a look at. And this is Richard's idea. So, you know, credit to Richard where credit is due. Uh, we're going to look at the, the three characters from the first three TNG live action series, because they don't want to discount the animated series, uh, that look at the humanity. So we're looking at uh, Spock, we're looking at Data, and we're looking at Odo, and we're going to compare and contrast three different versions of the same type of character. So I look forward to that. And thank you again very, very much Bye. for your support. We love you. Let's not go that far. <laughs>